arms. Give it your all. We'll drink the wine to the corpse dry and kiss the girls and then the cry and toss the dice until we fly and dance for Jack of the Shadows. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tales of Red Arm. I'm your host, Justin, and we're jumping into chapter 54, Into the Stone. Now, I do want to start out this particular episode's last chapter with a little caveat about there's not a whole lot in terms of, um, I'm probably going to say this exactly for the next episode chapter as well, but there's not a whole lot of crazy details, I guess, but there is a bit of action with a little bit of description. So this one probably I have a bit more to work with in terms of description. The next chapter will probably be very little because there's not a whole lot to describe. Things just happen really quickly. It's the end of the book. This is kind of expected. There are some things that I'd like to point out, but if I don't point out something that you think uh, was necessary or that you caught that I apparently did not, feel free to leave me a message on Twitter, Facebook, or direct email. Do all that at the end, so I'm not going to do it now. But since we are here, let's jump into it. So, currently, Matt is on top of the rooftops in Tyr, and he's starting to kind of regret doing this, but at the same time, he kind of has no other options. Um, so he's on this one roof that's three stories above the paving stones. It's like, well, it's not... Sensible men aren't going to be on a roof in the night. But when was I ever sensible? The only people I ever met that were sensible all the time were so boring that watching them could put you to sleep. Which I did think was a funny little jab at that. So, whether the thing was a street or a plaza, he had followed it all the way around the stone since nightfall. The only place it did not go was on the riverside, where the Aranen ran right along the foot of the fortress, and nothing interrupted it except the city wall. That wall was only two houses to his right, so far, the top of the wall seemed to be the best path to the stone, but not the one he would be overjoyed to take. So, the way the stone is more or less built is in a way to which the houses and the city and whatnot kind of build up into it. But it's much, much, much bigger in terms of uh, size than, say, uh, what you're going to be able to get away with from the houses. So uh, while walls typically are, you know, 30-ish feet, 20, anywhere from 20 to, I mean, I guess you could have some even as small as 15, but typically I think 20 to 30 be more the, the typical. This place is a lot bigger than 30. It's probably, I mean, it's a guess, but I would guess probably 60 plus feet. Keep in mind, though, the Stone of Tear is literally or I should say was literally crafted from the power. So it's like, it's literally one giant block. Like it, it's, it's not several pieces like you would typically find in a uh, typical wall or a typical fortress. It's, it's, it's very much one block that's like molded with the one power to put slits and stuff or arrows and all that jazz. So, somebody specifically explicitly made it this way. But, 
Matt has his quarterstaff, a small wire-handled tin box that he has to move carefully over by a brick chimney. And he's got rolls of fireworks with them, and they're on his back instead of in his room. And they're all kind of put together in a way that is a little... Uh, <laughs> a little um, dangerous, I guess. But he had slipped on the roof a little bit, sending a roof tile over the edge, and a man was sleeping in the room below. He was bellowing, Thief! Which, obviously, Matt ran from. And uh, so what happens is he uses this chimney, has this wire on this box, sends this box down the chimney and we'll get to what is in the box later on but it's like it's you know a little safer when you're in the shadows looking at the stone but doesn't feel too encouraging but the city wall was not nearly as thick as those he had seen in other places in Camelin or Tarvalon no more than a pace wide supported by great stone buttresses cloaked in darkness now now, a pace is plenty to wa walk on when the fall's not, you know, ten spans. And, yeah, the houses are just kind of, like, put together, but then there's certain things that just weren't. <laughs> um, he's like, well, he's just, these houses just walk right up to it. I can pretty much walk right up to the, the stone of tear. This, this is amazing. It does, but it's not particularly comfortable because the stone looked like cliffs, specifically the sides of it. Um, he looks at the height again. He's like, I'm, I should be able to climb it. He's like, well, it's just like the cliffs in the Mountains of Mist. Over a hundred paces straight up before there was a battlement. There must be arrow slits lower down, but he couldn't really make them out in the night. And he couldn't just squeeze through an arrow slit. A like hundred bloody paces, maybe a hundred and twenty. So that's roughly about the, the height you got. 100 uh, paces and 120 paces. To get to actual battlement, I should say. So it could be bigger in certain areas. could be smaller in other areas. Um, not to mention there's, you know, gates around that are shut tight and pretty much strong enough to stop a herd of bulls. Not to mention the dozen or so soldiers that guard everything with their helmets and breastplates, swords and belts, and everything like that. But then he, you know, notices something and he squints at the side of the stone and blinks. It's like, there's actually a fool climbing it, just moving as a, just visible as a moving shadow in the moonlight. And over halfway up already with a drop of 70 paces to the pavement under his feet. He's like, fool, really? Well, I'm as big a one because I'm going up too. Burn me. He'll probably raise the alarm in there and get me caught. But now he couldn't see the climber. He's like, who the light is he? Doesn't matter who he is. Burn me. This is a bloody way to win a wager. I'm going to want a kiss, of all, kiss from all of them, including Nynaeve. Now, you can probably guess who the climber is. <laughs> it's pretty obvious. But if you don't know, it's Rand. So he shifts around, look at the wall, and trying to find a spot to climb. But then there's steel across his throat. But without thinking, he knocks it away and sweeps the man's foot from underneath him with a staff. Someone else kicked his own feet away, and he almost falls on top of the guy he knocked down. 
He rolled off onto the roof tiles, loosing the bundle of the fireworks. He's like, oh, if that falls in the street, I'm going to break their necks. So he whirls his staff, and he hits something, and a second time heard grunt. But then there were two blades at his throat. And then he freezes with his arms out, outflung. And then there are the heads of short spears, specifically the points. Dull, not, not the sharpness, but the brightness. So they faintly, faintly caught the light of the moon, but not very much, if at all. And it's pressed into his flesh, just sort of, of bringing blood. His eyes follow him up to the faces of whoever's holding them, but their heads are shrouded and their faces veiled in black, except for their eyes, staring at him. He's like, burn me, I've run into real thieves. Where's my luck? So he puts on a grin with plenty of teeth so they can see it in the moonlight. He's like, I don't mean to trouble you in your work, so if you let me go in my way, I'll let you go in yours and say nothing. But the veiled men don't move, neither the spears. He's like, I want no more outcry than you. I'll not betray you. And they stood just like statues. And he's like, burn me, I don't have time for this. And he's like, time to toss the dice. But then he like thinks for like he pauses for a second. He's like, well, that's a strange thing of words to use. Time to toss the dice. What? But then he tightened his grip on his court staff, and it's onto the side of him. But somebody stepped on his foot or, or stepped their foot on his wrist, and he almost cried out. He rolled his eyes to see who it was. He's like, oh, I forgot the one I fell on. But he saw another shape moving behind the one standing on his wrist. Decided. It was well he had not managed to bring the staff into use after all it was a soft boot laced to the knee that rested on his arm and it, he, his memory is kind of like flickering and he's just like something about a man that met in the mountains and what the man that met in the mountains is uh i think his name was uriel um he's an uh aiel that they met in book two if you remember that's when varen was with them as they're heading towards, uh, well, they're hunting down Padon Fane to get the dagger and the horn back. But he's look, checking all these guys out and look at their clothes, and he sees a long bladed knife at the fellow's waist, right up to the dark veil across his face. A black veiled face. Black veiled. And he's like, Aiel. Burn me. What are bloody Aiel doing here? He had a sinking feeling in his stomach. He remembered hearing that Aiel veiled themselves when they killed. He's like, yes, we are Aiel. And he's like, huh, uh, I didn't realize I said anything out loud. And then a woman, young woman, says, you dance well for one caught by surprise. Perhaps another day I will have to dance with you properly. That's probably the one stepping on his wrist. So he tries to smile. He's like, well, she wants to dance. They can't be going to kill me at least. But then he frowns and he's like, actually, I think dancing is different for Aiel. <laughs> The spears are pulled back, and hands hauled him to his feet, and he shook them away and brushed himself off, and he's standing in a common room of a night-cloaked rooftop with four Aiel, like it's just normal. It pays to let another man know you're right, you have a steady nerve. And the Aiel had quivers at their waists as well as knives, and more of those short spears on their backs with cased bows. The long spear points sticking up above their shoulders. He's, he he notices he's humming, I'm down at the bottom of the well, which, if you haven't uh, heard it, Sound of Reflections on YouTube has a fantastic rendition of this that they worked with Robert Jordan on. Um, it's a very, very fun little song. Um, but he notices he's singing this, and st or he's humming this, and he stops it. And they're like, what are you doing here? And it's the, vo the man's voice, and he's not sure which one spoke, but it, it sounds older, confident, and used to command. 
But then he could at least pick out the woman because she was the only one shorter than him and not by very much. The others all stood a head taller than he or more. And I'm pretty sure he's broken the six foot mark. Um, I don't remember his exact height, but I think it's like six two or six four or somewhere in that. Like he, he's he's a pretty tall guy. He's not like super crazy tall, but he's tall. Um But he thinks he could like, you know, he, he could pick out the women because obviously she's shorter than the guys. Um but the other ones are clearly way taller than him. And they're like, we have watched you for a while and watched you watch the stone and you have studied it from all the sides. Why? And somebody else steps into the fray and is like, I could ask the same of all of you. And they're like, oh. it's a big gotcha moment. And Matt's the only one who gives a start as the man. And Baggy Breaches steps out in the shadows. And he appears to be shoeless, probably for better footing on the tiles. Like, I expected to find thieves, but not Aiel. But don't think your numbers frighten me, which, I mean, they should, because they're Aiel, so good luck. Um, and he has a slim staff, no taller than his head, making a blur and hum as he whirled it. My name is Julian Sandar, and I'm a thief catcher. He really hates being called a thief taker. Um, and I would know why you're on the rooftop staring at the stone. And Matt's like, how many bloody people are on the roofs tonight? Bloody thief taker. And he's like, all that now has to happen is that Tom shows up and plays his harp for someone to come looking for an inn. So the other man's like, well, you stock well for a city, man. But why do you follow us? We have stolen nothing. Well, I've, I mean, you could argue he's trespassing because you don't own the property that you're standing on. But OK, different story. Um, and he's like, well, why, why do you look so often at the stone, your night, uh, stone tonight yourself? But Sanders' surprise is a little evident, and he's just like, what? what? But then four more Aiel pop out behind him, and he's like, well, it seems I am caught myself. It seems I must answer your questions. Well, he looks at the stone and then shakes his head. He's like, I did a thing today that troubles me. And to Matt, and probably Aiel, it sounds like he's talking to himself, trying to figure it out. And he's like, well, part of me says it was right what I did, that I must obey. Surely it seemed right when I did it. But a small voice tells me I betrayed something. I'm certain this voice is wrong, and it is very small, but it will not stop. And he stops himself, shaking his head. And one of the Aiel nods, and the older man voice says, I am Ruark. We know Ruark. We love Ruark. Ruark's awesome. I am Ruark of the Nine Valleys Sept of the Tardad Aiel, and I was, and once I was Athendor, a Red Shield. Sometimes the Red Shields do as your thief catchers do. I say this that you will understand that I know what it is you do and the kind of man you must be. I mean no harm to you, Julian Sandar, of the thief catchers. <laughs> of the thief catchers. Nor to the people of your city. But you will not be suffered to raise the arm cry. If you will keep silent, you will live. If not, not. Sender's like, well, you mean no harm to the city, then why are you here? And Rurik's like, the stone. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> and Sandar's like, well, I almost wish you had the power to harm the stone, Rurik. I will hold my tongue. So Rurik turns, and here's the crazy thing. Like, for one, the Aiel are extremely, extremely honor-based. Like, ridiculously so. It's, it's built into their culture to levels of craziness. 
but they just take this guy's word for his word for no apparent reason. And, um, I find that wild, but I'm guessing he's speaking as somebody who was also in the same general sphere. Like I was a similar to a thief catcher or a thief taker, depending on where you're from, um, as a red shield. So I understand you and the kind of person you are. So give your word and I'll accept it. And that's kind of where I come from, like on the understanding part, it makes sense that if you're somebody in a profession and somebody else from another area or another sector of your profession shows up and you guys have like an understanding. Cause like, I know what you do cause I've done it before. So we'll agree to do X in this case, you know, you don't say anything. I won't say anything and we go away. And there's kind of like that professional, I guess, professionalism, but professional honesty with each other. And just like, Hey, I get you. But then he turns to Matt. But Matt, he already knows, is like looking to get inside the stone because they can tell just by him looking, like looking at it all night. And he's like, "And you, nameless youngling, will you tell me why you watch the stone so closely?" And Matt's like, "I just wanted to walk in the moonlight." But the young woman put a spear, <laughs> spear point to his throat, and he tries not to swallow. And it's like, "Well, maybe I can tell him something of it." And he's. <laughs> So he basically, he doesn't want to know, know he's shaken. So if you lose, if you let somebody know that, you lose whatever edge you might have. So very carefully, with two fingers, he moves her steel away from his neck. And it seems to him that she laughs softly. And he's like, some friends are mine are inside the stone. Prisoners. And I mean to bring them out. Ruark. And he's like, alone, nameless one. It's like, well, there doesn't seem to be anybody else, unless you care to help. You seem interested in the stone yourself. If you mean to go in it, perhaps we could go together. It's a tight roll of the dice any way you look at it, but my luck runs good. At least so far. I've run into the black veil I yield, and they haven't cut my throat. Can't get better luck than that. Burn me. It would not be bad to have a few Aiel along with me in there. We could do worse than betting on my luck. And Ruark's like, we're not here for prisoners, gambler. And one of the other Aiel came up and said, It is time, Ruark. And Ruark replies, Yes, Gaul. <gasps> it's Gaul! We love Gaul. We love Ruark. I'm guessing it's pure speculation. Um, there's technically no evidence of it, but I think it might be Avienda that stepped on um, Matt's wrist as well as put the blade to his neck. Um, the reason being is because the last known location we saw of Avienda, she was leaving with Ruark after they had freed Egwene, Nynaeve, and Lane from the bandits in the Murdral. So, that is my guess. Um, it's possible it's some of the random Aiel, but considering we're getting all the named ones, we get Ruark, which we already familiar with, Gaul, which we are already familiar with, it, it stands to reason that, you know, Avienda's the the, the one female Aiel in this little instance. No, hypothetically, there could be two. One could have stepped on the wrist and one could have put the blade up to his throat, but nothing explicitly states that they are separate people. Um, and if anything, that would just increase the chances of it being Avienda because now there's two people to choose from instead of only one. But that's just my guess. It could be something else. I could be completely wrong, which I'm completely fine with. 
but it makes sense. Um, and he's like, he, he looks at Matt and Julian and is like, don't give the arm cry. And just two steps away, he's gone. And Matt's surprised because the other Aiel are gone, just little puffs of smoke, leaving him with the thief taker. It's like, well, unless they left somebody to watch us, burn me, how would I tell if they did? Because we already have established that you don't see the Aiel unless the Aiel want you to see them. Like, that's it's kind of their shtick. And then he, he like, looks over and he's like, I hope you don't mean to stop me. And talking to Sandar. He's slung the battle, the bundle of fireworks on his back again, picked up his course up. And he's like, I mean to go inside, by you or through you, one way or the other. And he heads over to the chimney to pick up the tin box. And the wire handle was more than warm. And Sanders like, these friends of yours, uh, they are three women? And Matt's frowns and he's like, what? What do you know of them? But Sanders' voice sounded a little odd. He's like, well, I know they're inside the stone, and I know a small gate near the river where a thief catcher can gain entrance with a prisoner to take him to the cells. The cells where they must be. If you will trust me, gambler, I can take us that far. What happens after that is up to chance. Perhaps your luck will bring us out again alive. Matt's like, well, I've always been lucky. Now, I'd like to point out, this is not true. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of times Matt got into trouble. Now, maybe he means on a specific thing. Maybe he means in a certain time period, but obviously... He hasn't been, like, permanently lucky. It's not like he's always only ever been lucky. Um, so, he's just like, well, do I feel lucky enough to trust him? He doesn't like the idea of pretending to be a prisoner because pretense can become reality really quick. And But it's not really that bigger of a risk than climbing 300 feet or more straight up in the dark. So, there you go. 300 feet. Or at least, unless he's being hyperbolic. 300 feet would be the size of the stone. But uh, he glances towards the city wall and stares. And he notices that shadows flow along it, little dim shapes trotting. And he's like, well, it's got to be the Aiel. There's got to be over 100 of them. And they vanish. But now he could make out the shadows moving on the cliff face that was sheer side of the of Stone of Tear. He's like, well, I'm not going that way. The one fellow earlier might have made it inside without raising an alarm. Ruark's arm cry. But... A hundred or more Aiel would probably sound like bells. They might make a diversion, though, if they caused a commotion somewhere up there inside the stone. Then whoever's guarding the cells might not pay as much attention to him as a thief taker bringing a thief. So he's considering it. He's like, oh, maybe. He's like, well, I might, might as well add to the confusion. I worked hard enough on it. He's like, well, okay, thief taker. Just don't decide I'm a real prisoner at the last minute. We can start for your gate as soon as I stir the anthill a bit. And he thinks that Sandar frowns, but he did not mean to tell him more than that. So Sandar follows him across the rooftops, climbing the higher levels as easily as he does. And the last roof's a little bit lower than the top of the wall and ran straight up to it. And it was a matter of pulling himself up rather than climbing. And Sandar's like, what are you doing? Whispering to him. He's like, wait for me. So the tin box dangling from one hand by its wire handle and his quarter staff held horizontally in front of him. And Matt took a deep breath and started going up towards the stone. And he tried not to think of how far it was to the pavement below. He's like, the bloody thing here is three feet wide. I could walk it with a bloody blindfold in my sleep. But three feet wide in the dark and better than 50 feet to the pavement. And he tried not to think about Sandar not being there when he came back either. He practically committed to the idea of being a thief caught by the man, but he could probably just as well return to the roof with 
soldiers to make him an actual prisoner. It's like, well, don't think about it. Just do the job right now, and we'll see what it's like. So, I thought it was a little odd that he says job, because it seems like a modern phrase. Um, I feel like there would be a, a better term for it. Um, but, yeah, that was just something I noticed that I figured that the editor would have probably have caught, but apparently did not. So, he goes along the wall and finally finds an arrow slit right before the end of the wall, and there's a deep wedge cut into the rock holding a tall, narrow opening for the archer to shoot through. And if the stone were attacked, the soldiers inside would want some way to stop anyone trying to follow this path. The slit was dark at the moment, and there didn't seem to be anybody keeping an eye on him. But that was something he had wasn't. He was trying really hard not to think about. Then he quickly sits down the tin box at his feet, balances the quarterstaff across the wall on the side of the stone, unslung the bundle from his back, and wedges it into the slit, forcing it in as far as he could, but he wants as much of the noise to be inside as he can manage. So then he pulls aside a corner of the oiled cloth, cover revealing knotted fuses. And after a little thinking, back in his room, he had cut the longer fuses to match the shortest, using the pieces to help them tie them all together, the fuses, and it seems like they should all go off at once, and bang and flash like that should be enough to pull anyone who's not completely deaf. And all of us who know actually how fireworks work are probably laughing hysterically at this moment because that's obviously not how that works. So the lid of the tin box was hot enough that he had to blow on his fingers twice before he could pry it off. And he wished that he had whatever a Luger's trick had been, letting the lantern so easily, um, as to expose the dark bit of charcoal inside, lying on a bed of sand. The wire handle had come off to make tongs, and a little blowing had the coal glowing red again. He touched the hot coal to the knotted fuses, let the, tongs let the tongs and the coal fall over the side of the wall as the fuses hissed into flame. Snatching up his quarterstaff, he just heads down the wall as fastly as he could. This is crazy. I don't care how big a bang it makes. I could break my full neck doing this. And then, boom, this roar behind him is louder than anything he'd ever heard in his life. A monstrous fist punches him in the back, knocking all the wind out of him before he even lands. Sprawled on his belly on the wall top barely holding onto his staff as it swung over the edge. For a moment, he lay there, trying to make his lungs work, trying not to think how he must must have used up all his luck all this time, but not falling off the wall, and his ears rang like all the bells in Tarvalon. So he pushes himself up, looks back at the stone, and there's just this giant cloud of smoke holding on the arrow slit. Behind the smoke, though, there's the shadowed shape of the arrow slit, which seems a little different. A bit larger, you might say. And he didn't understand... How or why, but it did seem larger. And that's where those of us reading and have any inkling of how this works knows how this works. He's like, well, whatever. But he thinks for just a moment and he's like, one end of the wall, Sandar might be waiting, intending to take him to the stone as a pretend prisoner, or might be hurrying back with soldiers. On the other end of the wall, there might be a way inside without any chance of Sandar betraying him. He darted back the way he had just come, no longer worrying about the darkness of the drop at either side. But the arrow slit was larger. Most of the thinner stone at the middle simply just gone, leaving rough hole as if someone had hammered it with a sledge for hours. A hole just big enough for a man. How in the light? But he doesn't know, obviously, what we know. 
so he doesn't have time to wait for it. So he pushes through the jagged opening, coughing at the acrid smoke, jump to the floor inside, run a, about a dozen steps before defenders of the stone appeared, about ten of them, shouting in confusion. And they pretty much wore just their shirts, none of them had helmets or breastplates. One of the two of them might have lanterns. And a couple had bared swords. And he's like, ah, fool, this is why you set the thing off to begin with, light-blinded fool. But he, hadn't, he didn't have time to make it back out to the wall. But with the quarterstaff spinning, he threw himself into the soldiers before they had a chance to do more than see he was there. And he hurled himself into them, smashing at heads, swords, knees, whatever he could reach, knowing there were too many for him to handle alone, knowing that this fool toss of a dice had cost Gwen and the others whatever chance he might have had. But suddenly, Sandar was there beside him in the light of lanterns dropped by men clawing for their swords and his slender staff whirling even faster than Matt's quarterstaff. Caught between the two staffmen, taken by surprise, the soldiers went down like pins in a game of bowls. <laughs> it's called bowling. <laughs> so apparently they know what bowling is. Not the automated version, of course, but... Sandar stares at the fallen men. He's like, Defenders of the Stone, I have attacked defenders. They're going to have my head for it. What did you just do? A flash of light, thunder, breaking stone? Did you call lightning? Did I just join myself to a man who can channel? That's like, it's fireworks. And his ears are still ringing, but he hears more boots. And he's like, the cells, man. Show me the way of the cells before more get here. Sandar shook himself. This way. And they had dashed down the hall, away from the oncoming boots. So we gotta hurry. They'll kill us if they find us. Well, if they can beat you, yeah. But somewhere above, gongs began to sound an alarm. And more thundered across the stone. Echoing. Matt's like, I'm coming. I'll get you out or I die. I promise it. Hearing the alarm gongs, sending the echoes all throughout the stone, Rand doesn't pay any more attention to them than he had to the roar that had come before, like a muffled thunder from somewhere below. His side aches, the old wound burned, strained almost to tearing by the, the climb up of the side of the fortress. He gave the pain no heed, just the crooked smile on his face, a smile of anticipation and dread he could not have wiped away if he'd wanted to. He was this close now, and what he had dreamed of. Kalendor. I'm going to finish it at last. One way or another, it will be done with. The dreams, finished. The baiting and the taunting and the hunting, it's all going to be finished. So he laughs to himself and hurries to the dark quarters of the stone. Egwene put a, a hand to her face, wincing. She's got a lot of bruises and, you know, the beatings had taken their toll, let's put it that way. But she's kind of waking up and been like, oh, Rand, what? I'm dreaming about Matt again? All mixed with Rand, shouting that he was coming? What? Like, she's still kind of, like, not fully coherent. And then she opens her eyes, stare at the gray walls. She's like, oh, I'm not going to be chained again. I won't be colored. No! And again, I, I have my, my comments on this already, and it's just... It's irritating. But, not even Elaine right next to her in an instant and they're also bruised beaten faces were worried and fearful for the soothing sounds they made to be believed you know but just like that you know there were enough to steal her screams and she's not alone she's a prisoner but she's not collared and she's not by herself so she tries to sit up and they try to help her they had to because she ached in every muscle and she couldn't remember or she could remember every unseen blow during the frenzy that all but driven her mad when she realized 
but she's just like, I'm just not gonna worry about it. We're just gonna we're gonna escape, and then that's that's gonna be that. She slides backwards until she could lean against a wall, and she's just really tired. And the cell was absolutely empty except for the three of them and the torch. So no beds, no buckets for privies, nothing. And the floor is bare, cold, dark, all that useful stuff. Um, she notices that on the wall, there's some things that have been etched in stone by unsteady hands. It says, the light have mercy and let me die. Take that one out of your head, because that's a great one. She's like, well, are we still shielded? Like, that's an obvious one. Elaine nods, and she's like, I didn't have to ask. Obviously, the swollen cheek and everything of the golden-haired woman that is Elaine, her split lip, black eye, were enough to answer. If Nanine had been able to reach the true source, they would have definitely been healed. And he's like, I've been trying and trying and trying, and I've tried, tried, and tried. She gives her braid a sharp tug, but he's like, one of them is sitting outside, Amiko, the milk-faced chit. And he's like, if they haven't changed since we were being thrown here, at least, I suppose one is enough to maintain the shielding once it has been woven. So that's a little bit of lore we know, that shielding somebody might be a little hard, but it only requires one person, allegedly, to um, maintain the shielding once it's been woven. I'm not sure how true this is, because it's a it must be, or I suppose it is, rather than necessarily a fact. So there's a potential, there's more information to be had here. Um, but be as it may, we'll find out some other different information later on in the series. And you'll know when we get there, because I'll point it out. Um... You know, for all the pains they took and gave uh, to take us, you think it would be no importance at all. It's been hours since they slammed that door behind us, and no one's come to ask a question, look, or even bring a drop of water. Maybe they just want to leave us here until we die from thirst. Elaine's like, we're bait. At least that's what Leandrin said. Um, and Egwene's like, Rand. I dreamed about Rand and Kalandor. I think he's on his way here. Like, but why did I dream of Matt and Perrin? You know, there's a wolf, but I'm sure it was him. Keep in mind that right now, Perrin's currently hunting with Hopper for Fa'il. So that's where we're actively at, which we'll see in a minute about that whole thing. Um, But, you know, it's like, well, we escaped them. We're not going to be in big trouble. Like, we could we, we could better the Sanshan so we can best Leandrin. And not even Elaine look at each other and look back at her. It's like, Landrin said 13 Merdral are coming, Egwene. But then she looks over at the wall, that message, the light have mercy and let me die. And she kind of clamps her jaws shut, squeeze her fists, and try not to scream the words. Better to die. Better death than being turned to the shadow made to serve the Dark One. But then she realizes that one of her hands had tightened around the pouch on her belt. And she could feel the two rings inside, the small circle of the Great Serpent and the larger Twisted Stone Ring. It's like, they didn't take the Tirangrel, she said wonderly. She pulls it out of her pouch, and it lays heavily on her palm, just stripes and flecks of color, a ring with only one edge. And Land's like, huh, we're not even important enough to search. 
Egwene, are you certain that Rand is coming here? I'd much rather free myself than wait for the chance of him, but if there's anyone who can defeat Leandre and the rest of them, it's gotta be him. The Dragon Reborn is meant to wield Kalandor. He must be able to defeat them. So here's here's the problem with Elaine. She thinks that because there's a prophecy of something that it is guaranteed to happen the exact way it is stated. Which is verifiably false if you read the series. Um, but she has this this bad habit of thinking that. Keep in mind, a lot of people have this bad habit, but she specifically should know better, but she doesn't. It's shocking. I know. This is kind of my the beginning of the end of the good Elaine, but... And I guess the, it's the end of the good Elaine and the beginning of the, the not-so-good Elaine. Um, but they're like, well... This is extremely convenient that they didn't take the things we had in our pouches. Maybe they felt at the pouch and noticed it was really, really light and was like, oh, there's nothing in there. And then just kind of like no bother looking for it or whatever. couple options. But none of them are very satisfying. So we've got uh, Nynaeve basically saying, hey, well... He's not going to win if we get him into the cage after us. So they have set up a trap and he doesn't see it. But why are you saying at the ring? Like, Tell I run red will not help us now unless you can dream a way out of here. Little does she know. Um, it's like, well, maybe I can't. I could I could channel until I run red. Their shielding won't stop me reaching it. All I need to do is sleep, not channel. And I'm surely weary enough to, to sleep. And Elaine's like, well, I mean... I'll take any chance, but how can you channel in a dream cut off from the true source? And this is where the world of the dreams, Tele Run Riyadh, whatever you want to call it, doesn't operate on the same tier and level that we might be familiar with. So, also keep in mind that the world of dreams is extremely limited in the current knowledge of the era. Pretty much all of the information they have was through Corianan Nadil, who was studying the Dream Turangriol. But after her, Varen's read it. Some other people might have read it, but their knowledge of it's very, very little. Which Gwen's like, well, I don't know, but I'm she. I'm shielded here. It doesn't mean I'm shielded in the world of dreams, at least. But we'll give it a try. Now he was like, well, maybe I'll take it any chance, but you saw Leandrin and the others last time you saw that ring, so they saw you too. What if they're there again? Now Gwen's like, well, I hope they are. She clutches the tear on Grail, closes her eyes, and Elaine smooths her hair, murmuring softly, and Nynaeve begins to hum a, world, a wordless lullaby from her childhood. But now she doesn't feel any anger. The soft sounds and touches soothe her. It's just free ASMR. And let her surrender into the weariness and let sleep show up. That's literally what ASMR does, ironically. The good stuff's very helpful. The not good stuff's not helpful at all. Um, but now, Egwene's wearing a blue silk and didn't think much of it besides that. But there's a soft breeze caressing her unbruised face and the butterflies swirling above the wildflowers. And her thirst is gone. Her aches are gone. Everything's gone except for her normal state. 
She reaches out to embrace Sidar and was filled with one power. Now, this is a bit of a conundrum for a lot of reasons compared to Teleron Riyad, which you can study if you'd like to. It would take way too long for me to explain that on a level that you're not going to already find it out anyway. But needless to say, there's a reason. But she's a little reluctant as she releases the one power and closes her eyes and pictures the stone, the heart of the stone. And she opens her eyes. She's there, but she's not alone. And she sees the, the, vo the form of Joya Beyer standing before Kalendor, her shape so insubstantial that the surging light of the sword shone through her. The crystal sword no longer merely glittered with refracted light. It pulsed and glowed, as if some light inside it were being uncovered, then covered and uncovered again. Joya starts, startled, or starts with a surprise and spun to face Egwene. But how? You're shielded. Your dreaming is at an end. Now, here's the ironic part. Dreaming, like capital D dreaming, um, the, the lost talent is not necessarily a thing of the one power. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's more of a thing with the pattern um, from what I understand of it. And if she's a dreamer, like a legitimate dreamer, and doesn't need a Tirangreal or anything to benefit her in that regard to be able to use it, if she in fact does use it, well, the, the ability, not not the Tirangrail, but she she technically would enter in through dreams because unless you shield your dreams, shielding your dreams prevents other people from accessing your dreams or seeing what your dreams monitor or whatever. But it doesn't necessarily mean you can't dream. So her being a dreamer could technically add a bit more. But she's like, oh, you have a Tirangreal. He's like, that must be it. A Tirangreal that escaped us. Well, not like you looked. And one that doesn't require channeling. Neither does a dreamer. But okay. So do you think it'll do any good, girl? Whatever you do here cannot affect what happens in the real world. Mostly true. Tell I run Riyadh is a dream. When I wake, I will take your Tirangreal from you myself. Be careful what you do, lest I have reason to be angry with you when I come into your cell. And Egwene just smiles. He's like, oh, are you certain you're going to wake, dark friend? If your Terangriel requires channeling, why did you not wake as soon as I shielded you? Perhaps you cannot wake so as long as you are shielded here. But she stopped smiling at the woman because it was a lot more work than she could really stand to do. It's like, a woman once showed me a scar she received until I run Riyadh, dark friend. What happens here is still real when you wake. To be fair, this is to you, not to the world of dreams. Like, if you take an axe and cut down a tree in the world of dreams, does not equate to that tree not existing in the real world or not existing in this world anymore. Whereas things like animals, humans, and whatnot, if they die in here, things like spirit, like wolves, you know, that kind of thing, they're going to cease, like they're not going to be run through the system again, or they could die in their sleep if they're dreaming. But Joya's forehead starts sweating and her smooth, ageless face, which I always did wonder how they um, kept the smooth, ageless face if they managed to get around 
the what is it the uh oath rod Jeez, just brain fart sorry guys um but needless to say um i think i think it has to do with when they got rid of the oaths that they took for the oath rod they replaced it with another oath and that other oath is what like the oath rod just needs to have binding on you and as long as it's binding on you you'll technically be ageless that's my theory um but anyway there's just like hey woman who can give beatings probably should not object to a milder one and then she just lands a blow across her hips with one power, a flow of air. And Egwene's adjusting the weaving so she doesn't have to maintain it. And he's like, oh, you're going to remember this and feel it when you awaken, when I allow you to awaken. And remember this too, that if you ever try to beat me again, I will return here and leave you for the rest of your life. I mean, that's pretty good reason for Joya to wake up, go downstairs, stab Egwene, and then move on with her life. But there's a lot of mixed emotions coming from the dark, the black sister, the dark sister, the dark front sister. Um, mostly, you know, there's fear and hatred, but surprisingly more fear than you'd expect. But then Egwene feels a little bit of shame. She's like, that's not what she was trying to do. But the woman deserves every bro blow, but she's like, oh, whatever. So she ties off and the flows off her weavings before she had known she had done it and then pause to study it. And it's like three separate weavings and it wasn't a trouble to hold them all at once. Not that she had something that would maintain themselves, but she thought she could remember how to do it even, but she's like, well, we have to get going to get Nynaeve and Elaine because they're sitting in a cell still. So she turns and unravels one of the weavings and the dark friend sobbed as much as from relief as from pain. She's like, Oh, I'm not you. This is the second time I've done something like this and I don't like it. So I'm going to have to get used to cutting throats instead. And Joya's face betrayed that she thinks she's going to be the first one to learn on. So Gwen kind of makes a disgusted sound like, Ugh! and just leaves her standing there, trapped and shielded, and hurried into the forest of polished redstone columns, trying to find a way to the cells. Now we're switching point of views again, and young bull jaw land, er, closes his jaws on the two-legs throat and... There goes the dying scream. It was a bit bitter of blood on his tongue, but he knew the stone of tear. He doesn't know how he knows, but the two legs lying around him, one kicking with his last, um, with ho Hopper's teeth. I almost said Hooper. <laughs> Hopper's teeth uh, buried in his throat. The smell rank of fears they had for tonight as they'd fought because they were confused. He didn't know. He didn't think they knew that they were here why they were here, how they were here. And they weren't supposed to be in the wolf dream, but they had been set to keep him from the small door ahead with its iron lock and at least guard it. But they had seemed startled to see wolves and he had thought they were been startled to actually even being there themselves. <laughs> These poor guys are just out of luck. Um, so he opens his mouth and then he kind of like takes his form of being parent again and he's back in his own body as a blacksmith vest and heavy hammer and he's like we gotta hurry young bull there's evil nearby so parent pulls out the hammer heads to the door he's like oh vital's got to be here and one blow breaks the lock and he kicks the door open and the room's empty 
but a long stone block in the middle of the floor, and Fayil lay on that block as if sleeping. Her black hair spread out like a fan. Her body so wrapped in chains that it took him a moment to realize she was unclothed. Every chain was held to the stone by a thick bolt. But he wasn't really aware that he crossed the space until he touched her face, tracing her cheekbone with a finger. And she pops her eyes open and smiles at him, saying, I kept dreaming you would come, blacksmith. He's like, all right, give me a second, fail. I'll have you free in a moment. And then he smashes one of the bolts as if it were wood. He's like, oh, I'm sure of it, Perrin. And then his name fades from her tongue, and she disappears as well. With a clatter, the chains drop to the stone where she had been. And he's like, no, I had found her. That Hopper brings his words of wisdom. You know, the dream is not like the world of flesh, young bull. Here, the same hunt can have many different endings. But he doesn't look at Hopper, but he knew his teeth were bared like a snarl, and he raised the hammer, brought it down with all the strength against the chains that had held Fayil, and the stone block cracked in two under his blow, but the stone itself rang like a struck bell. He's like, then I'm hunting again. And he grabs his hammer and strides out of the room with Hopper next to him, and the stone was the place of men, and many knew were crueler hunters than ever wolves were. I guess that's why he took the form of a man instead of a wolf. But now alarm gongs are just going off everywhere. Not really sure, but there's metal on metal and shouts of fighting men getting rather close. And Matt suspects is the Aiel and the Defenders. And Matt's not sure. Like, he's in the middle of a fight. But he's noticing, like, golden lamps and silk carpets and all these things, like... Very, very fine stuff, but he's a little too busy for once to put a price on anything there. And as he's trying to sweep away a sword thrust, he's like, this bloody fellow was good. But the blow he aimed at the man's head with the other hand of the staff had to turn into another block of that darting blade. It's like, maybe he's one of these bloody high lords. He almost managed a solid blow at the knee, but his opponent sprang back, his straight blade raised on guard. Now, the blue-eyed man had a not fully awake clothing apparatus, I guess is the best way to describe it. Like, he's mostly clothed, but it's very, like, rushed. Um, like, his shirt's only half tucked in his breeches, and he doesn't wear boots. But he has short-cropped dark hair that was tussled, like a man roused from hastily from sleep. So, I'm going on a limb and saying his hair's not always tussled, it's only tussled because he just woke up, apparently. But he's not fighting like he's just woken from sleep. And five minutes ago, he'd come darting out of one of the tall carved doors that lined this hallway and a scabbardless sword in his hands. And Matt was just grateful the fellow had appeared in front of them and not behind. He wasn't the first man dressed like that. That man Matt had faced already, but he's definitely the best so far. And Matt's like, hey, thief catcher, can you get past me? And... Sandar had insisted irritably that Thief Catcher was better than Thief Taker, though Matt's not sure what the difference is, and I gotta be honest, there really isn't a difference. If there is, I don't know what it is either. Sandar's like, I can't. If you move to let me by, you'll lose room to swing that, or you call a staff. <laughs> uh, and he'll split you like a, a grunt. And he's like, like a what? He's like, well, think of something, Tyron. This ragamuffin is grating my nerves. And the gold striped coat guy's like, you'll be honored to die on the blade of the High Lord, darling peasant, if I allow it so. 
And now it's the first time in five minutes he's deigned to speak, but he's like, it said, I think I'll have the pair of you hung up by the heels and watch the skin is stripped from your bodies. He's like continuing. And Match is like, I don't think I'd like that. And <laughs> the High Lord Darlin is like, gives his face reddened with indignation for being interrupted. But Matt doesn't give him time for anything other, any more than that outraged comment. So his quarter staff whirling in a tight double loop weave so quick that the staff blurred at the ends. He heads, he dashes forward. And it was all snarling Darlin could do to keep the staff from him. Now I'm thinking, like, why don't you just, like, keep pushing it backwards until you get to a door. We slide into a room and you're good. Whatever. But Matt knows he can't keep up this attack for too long. But if he's lucky here, he would go back to the strike and counter-strike. And that's if he's lucky. Keep in mind, he already said he's really lucky and he's always been lucky. But not necessarily true. But he doesn't have any intention to counting this luck this time. But as soon as the High Lord had a moment to set himself in a pattern of defense, Matt altered his attack in mid-whirl. The end of the staff Darlin had been expecting in his head dipped to sweep his legs from underneath him. The other end did strike at his head then. As he fell, a sharp crack that rolled his eyes back into his head. <laughs> Just thinking that would freaking hurt. He'd probably kill somebody doing that. Matt kind of pants and leans over his staff on the unconscious High Lord. He's like, burn me. If I've got to fight more people like this, I'll bloody well fall over from exhaustion. The stories do not tell you being a hero is such hard work. None of you always did find a way to make me work. Tuck this away for later on the, at the end of this chapter. I'll get a couple paragraphs with it. This is re related to that. And Sanders looking down at the couple High Lord. He's like, he doesn't look so mighty lying there. He doesn't look so much greater than me. It's like, well, yeah, if you had your head split open and you were freaking lying on the ground, you probably wouldn't look that great either. But Matt, you know, gives a start and had, uh, appears in the hall where a man had just gone trotting across along a joining corridor. And he's like, burn me if I didn't know I was crazy. I could have sworn that was Rand. It's like, Sander, you find that? And he begins, but he swings his staff up onto his shoulder and it cut off when it thudded into something. He spins, he finds himself facing another half-dressed High Lord, this one with his sword on the floor and his knees buckling, both hands on his head where Matt's head, staff had just split his scalp. So quickly, Matt just thumps him into the stomach really hard with the butt of his staff to bring his hands down and then gave him a thump on the head again to knock him down on top of his sword. He's like, luck, Sandar. You cannot beat bloody luck. Now why don't you find this bloody private way that the High Lords take us down to the cells? And Sandar had, you know, insisted there was such a stairway, Using it would avoid having to run through most of the stone. And Matt didn't like the fact that men were so eager to watch people put to the question that they wanted a quick route to the prisoners from their apartments. It's also not particularly safe, so if the prisoners ever got out, they can get to the High Lords pretty quickly. Um, and Santa's like, well, just be glad you were so lucky, or this one would have killed both of us before we even saw him. I know the door is here somewhere. Are you coming, or do you mean to wait for another High Lord to appear? And Matt's like, all right, lead on. And he, as he steps over the High Lord, that's unconscious on the ground. I am no bloody hero. There's your second part. So he trots behind the thief catcher, who appears at all the tall doors as they pass, muttering that he knew it was around here somewhere. Whoo, boy, that's a long one. And the next one's just about as long, but we're going to save that for the next episode, because <laughs> it's, it's a long one. I thought these weren't particularly long when I had checked them priorly. Um, but I, I was actually, in fact, wrong. They are very wrong, very wrong. I was very, very wrong and long, very wrong or wrong, whichever one you put it. 
I can't speak. But yeah, that was the end of chapter 54. Let me know what you guys thought, because I am interested to see what you think about the multiple different points of view all happening more or less simultaneously in, um, in line with each other. Um, it's a bit confusing when you first get hit with so many in one, but, you know, it's not all bad. It's actually quite enjoyable sometimes, depending on if you enjoy the story, I guess. So you can reach me on Twitter at Tales of Red Arm, on Facebook, just Tales of Red Arm, or email me directly, uh, Tales of Red Arm at gmail.com. Um, love to hear from you guys, and I would love to uh, learn about some things you guys thought or hear your comments and whatnot, uh, any statements you might have to make, even if you guys absolutely hate it. It's just still fun to read. Um, Feel free to uh, join the Discord, which you can get through both Twitter and Facebook. Um, if you struggle with that, feel free to get a hold of me through Gmail, and I'll send you a link to it. Um, the Discord, I can pretty much be active all the time. Um, there might be times when I'm doing some work or whatever that I won't be available. But for the most part, I can always basically uh, pop in answers somebody's text or something um but also if there's people on i might invite somebody in to just chat with them if that's what they were liking wanting to do um there's just a bunch of fun stuff we can do through it um but yeah uh, i'd love to hear you guys thought we learned a little bit about uh fireworks at least we probably already knew about the fireworks we learned that they didn't know about fireworks um people being caught off guard we learned a bit about the i yield um the next chapter has some strange things at the very end of it about Aiel. Hopefully I'll remember for the next episode. But uh, yeah, um, I did think it was interesting and intriguing the way that he um, lit the fireworks with the coal in a tin box that he had a wire on that he lit, uh, let down into a house's chimney, which is kind of ingenious because if somebody's not actually like, cooking over the fire, they're not going to notice it. And then you just pull it back out. Nobody's the wiser. Ta-da! You've solved the problem. So, um, yeah. That was pretty fun. Um, what else did we get? Uh, Rand's kind of ignoring things. Perrin's still hunting down Fayil, despite having allegedly found her. And he's going to find her again. And again and again, to whatever end, he actually finds her, I guess. So, yeah. It is fun. Chapter 54, really fun. Um, 55 gets a little bit more hectic because um, all the stuff that's happening is about as confusing, if not more confusing than this one. But um, it's going to have more focuses on one at a time point of views rather than skipping between them back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to no end. But either way, um, hopefully you guys will join me for chapter 55. It'll be fun. We're two chapters away from finishing this book and moving on to the best book of the series, at least according to most people's opinions, um, book four. So I am not going to read the glossary now, but maybe once I'm finished with all 15 books and people would like me to, I will read the glossaries, um, try to do the enunciations, pronunciations, and all that fun stuff. But unfortunately, I have another, what, 
12 years to go <laughs> until I probably get to that. So <laughs> don't expect it anytime soon. It's, it's a lot of time when you're releasing one episode every week. And I'd love to have free time to be able to do like 10 episodes a week and move through these things really fast. But unfortunately, neither of us, I think, have that kind of time, whether one to listen to it and experience it or one to uh, create it. <laughs> so I remember we did a, a massive dump of episodes when we were, when I still had a co-host and I think we dropped like, oh, I don't know. I, I want to say we did like 21 episodes or something at the same time. I don't remember. It's probably not that many, but we did, we did a massive dump where we just like, we went through and burned through a whole bunch of uh, episodes all at once. And then we just like dumped it all at once. So people could have something to like get used to while we took a little bit of a break. Uh, I probably should have just, this is before I really focused on the, uh, auto posting and all that type of stuff. So now I can at least publish them on a particular time that way, but it was also to get us through, um, the reading fast enough for people to be familiar with the, uh, world of wheel of time, um, before the next stuff was coming up, but yeah, uh, hopefully you guys will join me. I would definitely love to continue this journey with you guys. And we're almost there for book three and we'll move on to book four. So thanks everybody for, coming to hang out and we'll see you next time until then we drink all night and dance all day and on the girls will spend our pay and when we're done then we'll away to dance with jack of the shadows we'll toss the dice however they fall and struggle the girls be they short or tall and follow young matt wherever he goes to dance with jack of the shadows We'll toss the dice however they fall And some of the girls be they short or tall Then follow Lord Matt wherever he calls To dance with Jack and the Shadows We'll give a yell with a bloody curse And hog the mags, it could be worse Let's ride away with the dark ones first To dance with Jack and the Shadows yeah. Yeah.